Hello and welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. This is episode 71 of the show. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joining you today on December 14th, as we record this at least, with Ben Badler, my trusty co-host who's, who's always with me. How is how's December treating you, Ben? Are you still hanging in there? You uh, being fueled by caffeine and no sleep at this point? I don't. I haven't done caffeine in a while. I know, like, Wait, as are I, you actually not? As I, as I see you, like pouring some giant energy drinks, yeah, to get through yeah. prospect handbook season. So uh, I pretty much have been living on the sugar-free white monster for many months now. I used to be a Red Bull guy, and then you know. Didn't really love the sugar-free version of Red Bull. I was trying to decrease the sugar consumption. I don't really want to drink my calories anymore. And then I stumbled upon the White Monster. And I don't know if you're a, an energy drinker, an artificial sweetener aficionado, but it uses sucralose in this drink instead of aspartame, and the taste is significantly better. So that is my drug of choice these days. You're not pouring back the Panera lemonades? No, although I, I can't even imagine the sugar content that those have. No. Yeah, I, I don't think the issue there is the sugar. Doesn't sound like. Really? What? What's? I must be missing the boat on the Panera lemonades. What's the deal with that? There was like a big issue with the Panera lemonade because of the caffeine content oh. in them, and people were just like, "Oh, free refills. Let's <laughs> uh, keep going back for more." But. Um, yeah, I, I thought I thought I thought we'd be seeing you at a. Oh my god! Be working from a Panera this week. The the large the large Panera lemonade has 390 milligrams of caffeine, and I've done some research into this because I didn't want to completely destroy my body. The daily max allowance for caffeine, which I don't think you really want to be pushing the max, is 400 milligrams. And for comparison, this how many ounces is it? Like 16 ounce. Yeah, 16 ounce monster that I'm drinking. What's your guess on the caffeine content of this compared to the 390 milligram Panera charged lemonade? Probably like a 200 in there? 150. 150. So I could drink two and be perfectly fine in terms of caffeine content per day, but try not to make a, a two can habit stick. But it, it is kind of the bulk of prospect handbook mode for me still. I, I feel like I've edited or read at least a third of the handbook and I'm already kind of itching to get towards some of the preseason content that's around the corner post holidays. I mean, we talk about this all the time on this podcast that the baseball really never stops. And this week, and especially after just some meetings and some conversations today with people on staff and just some slack talk, like I really do love the fact that we get to cover baseball and just talk about a sport that there's always something going on or something to get excited about and something to look forward to. I guess I'm, I'm just on a high right now. Maybe it's the, the monster. Maybe it's the prospect handbook season. Maybe it's the fact that I'm anticipating your international lists, or maybe it's the fact that we get to talk about some of the better divisions in baseball in terms of prospects today with the AL East. Or, or I didn't even mention, maybe it's the fact that we just saw a historically massive Shohei Otani deal last week, which we talked about at length on the podcast, but now it's actually happened. I feel like we at least have to start there and see what you think about his $700 million or lack thereof. You're fired up from doing the, doing your, thing in your spreadsheet of the net present value of Shohei Otani's oh contract and figuring out the proper discount value to yeah. apply. I have some finance bro friends and one of them sent me, or not me, but in our, in our group message sent me or sent everyone like 
some calculation that basically said the deal was only worth like $290 million. And I've seen 480 and I've seen 460. And it, I mean, you really can just plug in whatever number you want for the interest or the, um, the inflation. Like I, 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 again, I got into baseball and writing because I didn't like math and I didn't want to have to deal with that. But you basically have to be a math genius to figure out the logistics of this deal. It's a $700 million deal for me, Ben, because that's what it says. Yeah, I think the lesson you should learn is that if uh, if you hired your accountant or if you took tax advice from baseball Twitter, you're you're going to prison. I think you, could, <laughs> I think you should figure probably have figured that out at this point. So did you enjoy the – I don't know what we were calling Friday when we had the erroneous flight tracking of a Shark Tank cast member and lots of false reporting – I really found myself enjoying that and also found myself glued to Twitter when I, I had a bunch of other stuff I could have been doing and probably should have been doing. I, I got to say, Ben, I had a lot of fun with the whole Otani free agency spectacle. It was a blast for me. Did you enjoy it or were you more annoyed by it? Um, it, it was entertaining, I guess, <laughs> but also heavily fueled by just flat out wrong <laughs> reporting yeah so that's i think really unfortunate that it happened that way um well it made me glad that i'm not in like the newsbreaker business and i've been talking with some scouts about this this week as well like just talking about baseball and everything and i was like you know i'm really glad like a lot of my job revolves around talking to you guys about players and actually trying to break down the players rather than trying to get scoops because Number one, I don't know that I could handle that. It certainly wouldn't be more fun. Um, and it just feels like, I don't know, it just feels like something I would not want to have to dabble with at all. I also just feel like I wouldn't be adding a whole lot of value to the world by <laughs> doing that, truthfully. Like, so, like I, I mean, and the person who broke Shohei Otani's signing, every, everybody should say uh, first with the news was Shohei Otani. Hmm. And most of this stuff, like it's gonna, everybody's gonna know the agent or the GM or whoever is gonna send the news to everybody within a couple minutes. Anyway, you're not getting any, like you're you're really not getting news that you otherwise wouldn't have pretty quickly. Anyway, so uh, you know, I, I think there are people who do it who like you know, obviously Jeff Passan or Ken Rosenthal who are consistently great at yeah. what they do. Passan uh, was the first person I saw actually announce it. Like I wasn't on Instagram. I didn't see it directly from like I saw Passan basically had the, I think he had the, the, the numbers, the $700 million figure. And then he, he said that Otani broke it on Instagram and then I went over there and saw it. So when, when Passan had it, I, I was confident that it was right. And then obviously after you see the player himself announce it, <laughs> you're probably pretty confident that that has happened. Yeah, and then the CAA puts out the announcement that they signed for 10 years and $700 million, and then a few days later we find out, well, actually he deferred like 97% of that, and CAA left that out of the press release for some reason. So. <laughs> the memes that have come from that have been really enjoyable, uh, so I've liked that. But in terms of the actual deal, the, the crazy deferments, um, and, and also did you see today, or deferrals I should say, um, did you see today the the opt out uh, wrinkle of the contract? 
the part about where if, if Mark Walter or Andrew Friedman leave, then Otani has the right to leave. Has to opt out at the end of the year. Contract. Yeah. yeah. And that is, that seems crazy. And also, how much job security do you have if you're Andrew Friedman with that? That's that's amazing. I think he stuck that into the contract. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, he had it in his, uh, Joe Madden had the same thing yep. with Andrew And that's Friedman. why he left for the Cubs, right? Friedman left and Madden exercised the opt out and then left. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what Andrew Friedman's contract status is with the Dodgers. I don't even know if that's public knowledge anywhere, but yeah, I'm um, not sure. I'm sure he's not like in jeopardy of losing his job, but if he, you know, certainly he not now, he could also just say at some point, look, I've, I've done enough. I've made enough. Mm. <laughs> I've accomplished enough, uh, you know, in the next 10 years at some point and mm. leave and that could open the door for, for Otani to go elsewhere, I guess. Mm. But Okay, so even with the accounting that has to be done to account for deferred money, it, it seems like Otani still has a fairly easy record-setting deal. Um, what are your thoughts on the outlay here for the Dodgers? What are your thoughts on the landing spot for Otani specifically? I mean, for me, I, I was just, like everyone, massively intrigued by the setup of the contract. And I mean, it, it seems very clear that Otani is dead serious about trying to compete uh, and win championships. I mean, he just joined the most winning team of the last decade and structured the deal and took a lot of, uh, didn't technically lose a lot of money, but he pushed a lot of money into the future to try and ensure that the team can continue build rounding him. So right, he, he wouldn't be an obstacle to continue making the team better. So like everything that Otani has said, and we've heard about his interests seem to line up perfectly with this deal and with this team. Uh, and, and do you now think the Dodgers have like the most elite top three you've seen in a while? Because I mean, Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, Choi Otani is, is pretty loud. Yeah. The, I mean the full breakdown of the deal, I think does, we were joking earlier about the tax stuff, but it does, you do have to take into account what happens given the top California tax state tax bracket, I think is like 12%, which I'm pretty sure Otani leapfrogs that by <laughs> quite a bit. So if, if you're deferring that much money down the road, that could have a significant impact for him as well. But yeah, I mean, it, it'll be fascinating because they're sounds like they're going pretty hard after Yamamoto. Um, like, and this is not a team, you know, they do need pitching, obviously. So like, yeah, Yamamoto would be a big upgrade, but this is also not a team that's needs to make a whole lot of acquisitions to get them over the hump or, or, or anything like that. So yeah, I, I think it makes a lot of sense for Otani. That's why we, and I'm sure everybody else thought the Dodgers have been the favorites for forever. He, he gets to stay local. Um, he gets to go to finally uh, a winning team. It's, I think it's just good. Not that it's the Dodgers necessarily, it's but it's just good for baseball that we're going to get to see Otani mm. finally play in a playoff game. Like whether that's yep. whether that's with the Dodgers or you know the 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 Brewers or the Phillies or, or the you know potentially the Blue Jays had it gone that way. Like I mm. think either way would have been good for baseball just for the sake of getting to see him play in a playoff game, which yep. unfortunately we haven't seen Mike Trout do in like forever. So. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, that is the one element of this deal that, that kind of has me. I almost feel sad about it because there was some there were some posts in the aftermath of this where it, it was basically like showing the Angels' current roster and the state of their team. It's like Mike Trout basically sadly playing with a frisbee in a park by himself and <laughs> thinking about just the Angels' chances to compete while Mike Trout is still. A, a prominent part of that team and given the injuries that he's dealt with in recent years like if we only ever get that one series of Mike Trout in the postseason it would be a huge shame and I don't really know if that's a contract that I mean the Angels front office this offseason has very clearly said that he's not going to be traded I mean you don't sign a contract like that if you're Mike Trout if you want to be traded I don't even know how you would move that but just thinking about Mike Trout his odds to compete in the postseason in the future is is fairly disappointing considering he's he's basically been the best player of this generation um yeah it's kind of depressing to think about like what are the most memorable mike trout moments on a yeah i mean literally the most memorable mike trout moment is probably when he struck out against otani in the world baseball classic like (laughs) that probably like that was such a fun moment regardless of the outcome like teammates, arguably the best two players in the sport at that time, competing at that moment in the World Baseball Classic. That was such a, that was such an awesome moment. And I, maybe it's maybe it's just fitting for Trout that it wound up with him striking out. It's kind of been fitting for for his championship chances in, in Major League Baseball. But this also reminds me of how annoyed I get when people use postseason performance or lack thereof when talking about Hall of Fame cases. Like it's not Mike Trout's fault that the Angels have been terrible for his entire career. This isn't the NBA where you can just carry someone to a championship or, or to even to a postseason. Like the, the team has just been very bad, <laughs> pretty much his entire career. So I I hate that, but that's a side tangent. That's not really that important. You don't think that's going to stop him from uh, getting into Cooperstown? <laughs> if it does, we'll have some angry columns, and I might write one myself. Yeah, I think he's uh, as close to a one hundred percent lock as it gets. Yeah, it would be it would be inappropriate if it was not the case. All right, any do other? You, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, do you feel, do you feel worse for Angels fans or Blue Jays fans right now? I feel like Blue Jays fans are just like definitely Blue Jays jump fans. off a cliff. Definitely Blue Jays fans. I mean, first of all, living in LA sounds a lot more fun than living in Toronto. No knock on Toronto; it sounds like a cool city, but the, Dude, the weather seems way cooler. What's everybody's everybody's banging on Toronto for some reason. It's I like mean, the... I, I like seasons as much as anyone else, but if I had to pick Toronto or LA, I'm taking the LA weather. I guess. I mean, Toronto's... but anyways, yeah. outside, outside of weather in cities, at least the angels will be one of two teams who can say they got to watch Shohei Otani play. I mean, he did some amazing things that there's a good chance. Like you, you, the best you've ever seen of Shohei Otani happened at your park with his, his your jersey on his uh, on his body with Mike Trout like you got to see two absolute stars and so it's it's hard for me to feel as bad maybe it's like more heartbreaking for them because like they had him and now they've lost him to their inner city rival I don't really know what the rivalry status is with with the Angels and the Dodgers but for Blue Jays fans it's it's almost like <laughs> Like you really thought he was coming and there was some reporting that seemed to suggest that he had made his decision and Blue Jays fans who were tracking that he was on the flight the way on the way, Toronto. like 
there there were uh, there was news about some uh, sushi restaurant being rented out for like some welcoming party like all kinds of these stories where you're getting really excited you've got a solid core you're trying to compete in a tough division and now you're getting Shohei Otani who's going to put so much more attention on your team and so much star power and to have all of that just come crashing down in a span of like 48 hours that feels worse to me. Like, like you, you never got to really have Otani at all. You only, in your mind, thought about the possibilities, and you probably were getting excited to get an Otani Blue Jays jersey, and you got to see Drake with his Otani jersey that was probably photoshopped. Um, so I, I feel a little worse for Blue Jays fans because, again, like Angels fans at least got to enjoy it for a bit, um, and, and they got to see a lot of history and really cool baseball moments that, that are always going to be very prominent um, with him in an Angels jersey. So that I, I probably am more, I feel more sorry for Blue Jays fans. Are you, are you in agreement? If, I was just say, if, if you're Yamamoto's agent, do you, do you just like, is, is a new tactic now? Maybe you just rent out uh, like mm. a, like a big restaurant with like a reservation yes. and put it under in his name. Some, yeah. Or put it under some player's name and then, make sure that gets leaked to the media yes. or, or, or some random Reddit user uh, that can get. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how easy it would be for you to actually rent it out under a name and just tell someone, have the reporter call the restaurant and they can say, yeah, we have a reservation for that. And then leak it. It'd be pretty easy to do. Right. I think, yeah, I, I think these are, you come up with, these are pretty smart. Ben, you come up with so many of these underhanded tactics. I remember, a few months ago, you were coming up with like underhanded ways to boost your draft stock and workout environments. You, you've got a mind for this. I just, I'm just going off the conspiracy, the, yeah. the, the rumors out there. The you didn't, you didn't hear the CAA plans, everything with the plane and all that. No, it's just the next logical. I'm just fall. I'm just like watching the ride unfold. Like I'm just watching the show, just taking it in. I'm not putting too much thought into it, and I'm yeah. certainly not putting too much thought into the Excel spreadsheets trying to break down the the actualized value of Shohei's contract. Yeah, I, I feel bad for Blue Jays fans, just in the sense of like, I, I mean, it seemed like they, it seemed like they were making a very strong pursuit at him, which you probably wouldn't have thought. You know, come maybe like at the All Star break. Oh, the Blue Jays are going to sign Shohei Otani. Like it probably yeah. wasn't in the cards that you were expecting. Mm. But then these reports were coming out, and I mean, from not again, like the, obviously the, the stuff with the plane and all that is whatever. Uh, like, or like that's a separate thing. But there were two pretty prominent reports saying one, Otani is signing with the blue Jays has made a decision <laughs> and then another that, yeah. Oh, he is heading to Toronto now. So I feel bad that not there, like they're listening to people who should be trusted sources of, uh, reporting and they got bad information telling them that, uh, either Otani was signing there or, mm. uh, he was heading to Toronto and just wasn't, wasn't true. I mean, the good news for Blue Jays fans, though, is that apparently they have interest in, in J.D. Martinez now. So that's a good plan Plan B for your DH spot if you can't get Otani. So they should still be excited about that, right? Uh... <laughs> you don't seem too excited. I am well... curious to see the ripple effects of, of free agency, where some of the other big players 
wind up. I mean, if, if you're the Blue Jays and you're in on Otani, I would imagine you could be in on every single other free agent on the market. So I'm very curious to see what they do um, beyond this. Yeah, but I think there's a pretty big step down, especially in this year's free agent class from yeah. Otani, especially if you're looking for the offensive angle that Otani gives you compared yeah. to like every other hitter <laughs> who's <laughs> available right now. Yeah, you don't like the hitting class here. I mean, Cody Bellinger is interesting, but he's also fairly scary. Um but, yeah, I don't really have any other thoughts on free agency or anything else uh, at this point. Do you want to move on to some prospects? Or do you have any other thing you want to touch yeah. on before we get it, into that? Is the farm system going to save the Blue Jays this year? Well, I was about to say it's not. It's it's kind of a bummer because I feel like every other farm system we're going to talk about on today's podcast I'm much more excited about than the Blue Jays. Is that the case for you? Uh, yeah, that's probably fair. <laughs> I mean, I think the AL East is the best single division in terms of prospect quality. I think that four of these five teams have a case for top 10 in the game. Yeah. Uh, especially when you have the Orioles. Um, mm -hmm. It's to me far, like that's pretty easily the number one farm system in baseball. Having mm -hmm. Jackson holiday is a big part of that, but yep. I mean, e even if you took away Jackson holiday, this would still be a top probably five Three, yeah. farm system in baseball. You're talking about six, this... seven, maybe a case for eight guys who could be top 100 prospects still. I think every single hitter on their top 10 has a chance to be a solid everyday player. I mean, that's what, eight hitters? There are two pitchers in their top 10 currently. And I also think this is a trend of the AL East farm systems is a lot of these teams are very hitter heavy. So I know you're going to love that just given your general hesitance um, to put a lot of stock in, in pitching prospects. Uh, but each of Jackson Holiday, Samuel Vasayo, Kobe Mayo, Colton Kowser, Heston Kerstad, Joey Ortiz, Connor Norby, and Enrique Bradfield Jr., who they just picked up in the draft, like it's, it's pretty easy to see a path to where they become average, solid average, or better uh, everyday big leaguers. I don't know how many other teams can, can claim that from their their prospect, their farm system. Uh, but that is pretty loud. And like you said, when you're starting off with Jackson holiday, who you and myself both view as the top, the number one prospect in the game, it's also a lot of infielders. Like it's a lot of left-handed hitting. It's just a lot of demographics and a lot of player profiles that are both exciting and you would feel relatively safe about them. Um, so it's yeah, pretty easily the top system in the game. Are you, are you surprised that they've held on to all of these prospects up to this point and haven't executed a trade to upgrade, uh, whether it's the bullpen or, or the starting rotation yet? Um, I don't think so. I mean, we're, we're probably getting to the point where they're going to have to make some decisions there. But the fact that Holiday hasn't got to the big leagues yet, Kobe Mayo hasn't yet, like... Connor Norby, not quite yet. Like they're all very close and approaching. So I would be surprised if next year uh, we're still looking at all these guys in the in the organization in some capacity because I do think that they have a surplus uh, and it's a it's a really valuable commodity to have and they have other holes on the roster that you probably want to address with with this prospect capital you have. But I don't think right now like it doesn't jump out as shocking to me that they haven't already pulled 
the trigger. Uh, maybe it's just a case if you want to um, just add some more certainty to your evaluations and, and figure out which of those players you want to move. I don't know if you feel strongly about the players they should move or shouldn't move or the defensive linemen of the infield or, or which guys you can pencil in and which guys you can kind of put in the lineup with a Sharpie and feel a lot more confident. But I don't think it's shocking. Um, not, not, not quite yet. Yeah, to me, the the only guy who would be off limits in a trade would be Jackson Holiday. I think. Hmm. Well, I'm curious. You know, when he comes up, where would you put him? Obviously, with Gunnar Henderson. I mean, does he play second base, third? Because he's coming up this year, and mm-hmm. he might. I, I don't know with with the new rules that incentivize putting player like him on the opening day roster to get an extra draft pick depending on how he finishes in the awards voting at the end of the season he could be there opening day if he's not he's going to be there pretty early but Hmm. you know whether it's second base third base wherever it ends up shaking out um, they they just like you said they don't have room for all these players Um, yeah i wouldn't give up a unless i got back some starting pitcher or some some really star high-end player who has probably like i would say at least three years of team control Hmm. left because i I think basayo is probably going to be a top 25 ish prospect uh pretty dangerous middle of the lineup type bat if everything clicks Mm -hmm. um uh, you know whether it's catcher or not uh i'd say more than likely moves off but especially in that organization uh, given that they have Adley Rushman, but so, like these other guys who are good prospects, but like Joey Ortiz, Connor Norby, uh, like you know, including like Mayo, Kowser, Kerstad. I, I think these are all good prospects, but mm-hmm. um, I, I think some of these guys, as much as you want to hold on to them, I, I think if the right opportunity comes. Some not all of these guys are still going to be with the team yeah. by the end of the year. I think that um, Sam. Abbas- by, I should say by the end of this upcoming season, not before. Yeah, <laughs> not necessarily by <laughs> January one. By, by December twenty or December thirty first. Yeah. Um, I think Samuel Basayo and Joey Ortiz are maybe the most intriguing, and you kind of hit on it with Basayo. I, I do wonder, like, is his value to another org just? more than what the Orioles could get out of him because of the fact that Adley Rutschman exists. Like there are some teams that have used a really strong combination of, of multiple catchers and the universal DH maybe allows you to shuffle them back and forth. But like the more you're putting Adley Rutschman in games as a DH, the less you're, you're getting the value that he brings to the table as a defender and as a leader behind the plate. So like how much would you really want to balance out, like keeping him fresh uh, and, and minimizing the wear and tear uh, versus just the defense that you're giving up with not having him behind the plate. That's kind of an interesting conversation to have. And then with Joey Ortiz, I mean, you could make a case that building the best defensive infield revolves around putting him at shortstop and then filling out around him. But I think the Orioles are just have such good prospect depth and, and young talent at the infield that I, I'm, I'm not really optimizing for the best defense I am just putting together all of my best hitters that I can possibly fit into the dirt and putting them in the optimized order, if that makes sense. So maybe Joey Ortiz is a guy who, just given his fielding ability, maybe there's another team that just doesn't have that sort of infield depth, needs a shortstop, 
where he can get everyday ABs. Uh, he'll bring that strong defense into the fold and then get a chance to hit every day and maybe maybe increase his upside offensively. But yeah, those two are the ones that really jump out to me as like interesting trade candidates. But I'm curious what your infield alignment would be with all of these players. We have we have Holiday, we have Gunnar Henderson, we have Jordan Westberg, um, Ortiz. You've got Connor Norby. You've got Kobe Mayo. Like in your world, like what are you hoping for? Turns out, what, what are you hoping turns out to be your defensive alignment? Because I'm probably higher on Jackson Holiday as a shortstop than most people at BA. I know a lot of people are moving him to second base, um, but I really don't know how I would line these guys up. Yeah, I mean, they have Jordan Westberg too. It's <laughs> it's crowded. Um, yeah, I, I could see either Gunner or Holiday at shortstop. I might lean toward Gunner at shortstop, put Holiday at second base, or you could put him at third too like he certainly doesn't look like your typical third baseman i guess but um i i think it'll kind of work itself out like either way those are the two guys who you're Mm. building your infield around and then the rest is like all right go out and go out and prove it go out and win win a job or potentially just get traded yeah no, I think the spring training for Baltimore should be immensely fascinating, um, just given some of these positional battles and, and seeing how scouts view them defensively. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a pretty exciting young core. Any any thoughts on, on Deal Hall or Chase McDermott or any of the arms or, or other prospects we haven't really talked about here? Uh, yeah, Deal Hall, I think the pretty much reliever only at this point. Um, I, I don't see any way of him going back to a, a starting role the stuff has always been there the control has always been missing shaky it's fair to say mm-hmm. <laughs> at best um i i've always been lower on him just because i've never really been sold on his ability to to start um has never thrown a ton of innings in the minor leagues um He's always walked a lot of guys. It just has always been a pretty big red flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he can figure out a way to throw more strikes, the stuff is certainly there to be a high leverage reliever. But uh, for me, I'd probably have him lower down where we have him just because I, I think the fact that he is limited to a relief role, albeit one who's ready for the big leagues right now, which minimizes some of the risk. I just think that lowers the ceiling of what he could do compared to some of these other position players that they have. Yeah, and I think it is worth noting he did pitch reasonably well down the stretch uh, in the big leagues out of the bullpen. I agree with you that he's he's pretty much reliever only for me at this point. It's just when you get so many years of the same questions coming up and, and the control not being addressed at some point, you just kind of are who you are as a player. If you don't show that ability to adjust, he'll be entering his age 25 season. Um and yeah, while and relievers some... aren't the sexiest profile, like I, yeah, I do think he can be one of those kind of lockdown types that you put in in leverage situations. And again, maybe the control is such that you can't ever fully trust him in leverage situations. But it would certainly be an arm that I would want in my bullpen. Yeah, with you know, like the like the Randy Johnsons of the world, right? Who are six seven, six eight, six nine, six ten. Uh, yeah, those guys are going to take longer, maybe for everything to click, and you have more patience just because they have such long levers and 
moving parts and it makes sense that it's going to take more time for their body coordination to come together. But uh, it's not really the case with DL Hall. I think he just has trouble throwing strikes and he's always had trouble throwing strikes and not to say that it can't improve, but it doesn't seem like it's trending that way or, or not a whole lot of signs that it's getting better over the years. Where does this Baltimore farm system stack up with you in terms of like historically good farm systems that come to mind? Is it is it a standout group or just solid average for number one? How do you view that? I mean, how about just compared to like the Orioles system last year when they also had Gunnar Henderson <laughs> in this group too? Uh, you know, I obviously could argue like oh, Jackson Holiday wasn't the prospect he is today, or, or Samuel Basayo isn't the prospect he is today. Neither was Gunnar Henderson. Uh, Gunnar, oh, well, no, Gunnar Henderson was the number one prospect. Well, I'm talking about relative to where where he was drafted. Like he was drafted in the second round. Right, but there's farm system coming into the 2023 uh, uh, I version. See. I see what you're talking of the about. Orioles, yeah, yeah, yeah. Farm system had him. So, um, so are, who yeah, who is going to be the Orioles' number one prospect in all of baseball next year? Besayo. That, that would probably be if you had to bet <laughs> on one guy. That would probably be the bet. I, I'm not saying I think he will. In fact, I, I would be surprised if he was. But, um, but yeah, I I think it's a it's not like a historic farm system. If, if that's what you mean, I like, I don't think, Oh my God, this is one of the greatest farm systems we've ever seen, but I think it's clearly the number one farm system in, in baseball this year. Yep. I would agree. All right. After the Orioles, do you have a, an obvious team that you think is next up or, or just a team you want to talk about next? I think, I think the blue Jays are clear five for me in this group. Um, I'm not sure if that means you want to save them for last or if you want to tackle them now, but, I I do view each of Boston, New York, and Tampa as either like top ten locks or like cases could easily be made to put them in the top ten. I think the the Rays clearly have the the best prospect after Jackson Holiday yep. in the in the division with Junior, Junior Caminero. Caminero. Yep, uh, but I don't think their depth is quite as good as as we would typically think for the Rays farm system mm. and it's i think that, we have we have organizational fatigue with the Rays. you well that's what i was going to say I'll, I'll i'll address mine after you're done well i was going to say it's it's kind of like the dodgers where yeah they're always picking at the back of the draft every year and we always i mean they get some extra picks too but um we're, we're so accustomed to seeing them have this elite farm system where if it's down a little bit, it seems like, oh, what's going on here? I mean, their difference from them and the Dodgers is they're typically trading for hmm. prospects, which is how you get your junior Camonero or Curtis Mead and, um, you know, Oslavis Basabe, these kind of guys. But, um, yeah, I, I think it, it falls off a little bit more. Uh, a little earlier than usual compared to what we we typically see with the Rays. Yeah, and I think that that could be true that compared to what we typically see with the Rays, their depth is down. But but even with that, I think their top ten is is quite deep, and it could be the fact that there are a number of players in this top ten that I'm personally high on, like Adrian Santana and Braden Taylor, are guys in the six to ten range that I like quite a bit coming out of the draft. But I also just like the fact that the Rays top 10, 
you're led with Junior Caminero, which that that should be a significant factor in where a team ranks. Like how good Huge, is your yeah. elite level talent? Specifically, if it's a hitting hitting prospect, that that carries a lot of weight. Uh, like I would much rather have a Rangers esque system that has two elite talents at the top and maybe questionable depth than the inverse. So the fact that they have that, they have a lot of infielders with tools. Carson Williams is a great defender with some power. Curtis Mead has had a pretty gaudy reputation as a hitter uh, for a while now. I think there are some question marks with a number of these guys, like Xavier Isaac. He has huge power. Maybe you have hit questions with him. I'm, again, another guy that I'm personally probably higher on than others. I just like the quantity and the quality of all the hitting inside the top 10. And I like this top 10, even while acknowledging that I have no idea what to do with Shane Boz or what to think about him at this point. Um, but I just think it's a lot of really interesting hitters at up to middle positions with power. I, I, I expect to be higher on the raise than most. And it was funny going through the process of looking at the raise and people on staff being like, oh, this isn't a great raise system. And thinking back to like, how quickly my brave system fell off that I did and like trying to calibrate our expectations for the raise versus like what is an actual average farm. To me, this is still a pretty solidly above average farm. Yeah, no, I'm not saying they're a, you know, a 21 to 30 system by any means. Um, but yeah, for, for a team that's so often been a top five or top three or even number one farm system, in baseball or at least in that conversation i don't think they're quite in that range that we're used to seeing them in mm. okay next up uh would you would you take new york or boston hmm again like I, this is one where i, I think the red sox their top two is mm. really strong um that's marcella where, meyer and roman anthony and top two for the red sox yeah that's really strong, whereas the Yankees, uh, not quite as strong uh, at the top. But uh, I think they're they're deeper um, mm. in in their not just like from one to thirty, but they have more they have more guys who are I think legitimate top one hundred prospect or top one hundred conversation type guys. I think you go six, seven or so. Mm-hmm. deep in that conversation for them whereas with the red Sox, I, I don't see it going quite that deep in in the top 100 guys maybe uh, probably four four or five you can make a case for yeah i would go three but i know that, that some people like sedana sedana rafaela uh more than me yeah yeah i mean when i put those numbers out it's you know at least in the conversation for and then mm. yeah you have to how, how much of a factor do you think losing Drew Thorpe is for the Yankees system and how you view it? Or is it not too significant just given it, it seems like you're pretty confident in the depth? And I will also say Josh is doing the system for us. And I would say he, he doesn't typically get very excited about systems, but his excitement about the depth of this Yankees system was very, um, I guess, hearing him be so as excited as he was, was like, oh, OK, this is something I should be paying attention to. Uh, because he's, I, I'd say he typically is, is leans towards more critical than more excited or optimistic about a system. Yeah, and he's been doing our and just writing about the Yankees farm system for probably like 10, 15 years, something mm. like that. So yeah, um, he's been following the system pretty closely for a long time. And yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's obviously the the obvious guys at the top who are ready or, or close to ready now with 
Dominguez, Spencer Jones, Everson Pereira, uh, Austin Wells, and then the deeper down guys that are, are you know are pretty well known. I think at this point, Roderick Arias, uh, Henry Lane, big big arm at the Yankee sign from uh, internationally. George Lombard Jr. their their first round pick. Um, so there's and then there's a whole bunch of pretty interesting guys who are at the lower levels of the system who I think have a chance to pop up and, and become bigger names. And I'm sure like every year there's, you know, somebody else like Henry Lillane who pops up where it's like, Oh, who's, who is this guy in <laughs> rookie ball? Or who is this guy in the Dominican summer league who they signed for 10 grand or a hundred thousand dollars and is throwing 98 miles an hour. Yeah. No, it, it is a lot of depth. I'm excited about George Lombard Jr. I think he's got a really well-rounded tool set. I'll be curious to see what he does over a full season. What are your thoughts on, on Spencer Jones at this point? I mean, Jason Dominguez is obviously the most famous name. He's still leading uh, the system. Uh, but Spencer Jones is a fascinating one. He's got some of the best raw power of any players we're talking about here. I mean, him and Everson Pereira have really exciting top-end power numbers. Uh, I think outside of like Junior Caminero and maybe Xavier Isaac, these two would be some of the more intriguing power names at this point. But what, what's your confidence in Spencer Jones' hitting ability as he continues to get reps at the upper levels of the minors? It it seems to be getting better. Um, the strikeouts are still high. That's still a concern. It's just always going to be mm. a concern. It's not a surprise. Like he's you know six foot seven. There's going to be length to the swing, and then the breaking ball recognition it it got better but it's it's still a pretty high swing and miss right there hmm. but when he yeah you know, like you said when he gets into it he can hit the ball uh, as hard as anybody like the ball just it's really really loud hmm. when it comes off his barrel so there's there's power uh there's athleticism is he a true center fielder or a corner guy uh, you know to me it, hey Aaron Judge plays center field so yeah I mean that's like he could play center if you need like or maybe you could put him out there in a pinch uh, I think ideally you prefer to have him in a corner so yeah mm -hmm. and the Yankees are obviously going to figure out what they're going to do with these guys and now they had uh, you know with Juan Soto it's another <laughs> uh Makes it makes a makes it a very good problem to have. I mean, has has Spencer Jones played a single inning in a corner in pro ball? He played some right field at Vanderbilt, I believe, since he's been selected by the Yankees. He's only played center field, which is kind of shocking. Like I remember watching Spencer Jones when he was in high school, and it was also shocking then seeing a, a player that tall because he was still he wasn't quite as physical as he is now at that stage, but he was really tall. I thought he was a better pitching prospect at the time, but watching him get out of the box and go from home to second on a double, it was it was shocking how fast he was, and he still is turning in above average run time. So I'm, I'm waiting on him to slow down, but I think he just might be one of those outlier freak athletes who just always moves at a, a level you don't really typically see from players that size. And the fact that he's continued getting innings in center field is just fascinating to me. I mean, he will be in very rare territory as a six foot six center fielder, if he plays regular time at the major league level, it's a very short list of players who have ever done it at that size. Um, 
But the fact that he hasn't played any corner in pro ball is pretty surprising to me and intriguing. Yeah, and I think Dominguez surprises people too, Jason Dominguez, with the way that he's able yeah. to move. It's like two very his... odd body types here in, in different ways. Yeah, yeah, he's, you know, five. I don't know what they're listening to him now, but like he's probably like five. Five nine. nine. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think they, they hide and waited everybody. <laughs> or not everybody, but they tried to. Are they doing that uh, for the um, ABS system, trying to get standardized heights for everyone? That's what it seems like. Yeah, trying to <clears throat> get it. Get it. Yeah, so when you measure the automated strike zone, uh, maybe it becomes less relevant depending on how they're doing the measurements, like or as far as height. Um if you're going to go to a more individualized strike zone. Um, but, but yeah, so we saw, saw quite a few players shrink on their official height shocker during, during the year this year. But, uh, but yeah, he's just sort of a, yeah, s- smaller compact, but super explosive player. Um, obviously it sucks about the injury. We won't see him at the start of the year um, <clears throat> this year. So, uh, or next year, I should say, but, um, yeah, really, really good athlete packs a lot of tools into a very different frame than Spencer Jones. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the Yankees hitting philosophy? I mean, it doesn't feel like a Ben Badler sort of offensive player type. Almost every player in this top 10 of the system is power over hit to some extent. Now it doesn't mean that every player here is a huge like swing and miss guy, but the Yankees clearly prioritize exit velocity towards the more extreme end of teams, I would say, just based on how they operate in the draft, uh, what they're prioritizing in player development at the minor league level. Like George Lombard is the only player that really doesn't fit that demographic uh, or, or that player type. Are you a fan of that um, or do you not have any any takes on this? Well, it's the, a lot of these guys, when they sign them, weren't necessarily that way, though. Um, mm. I mean, Spencer Jones is obviously an exception, but yeah. um, Jason Dominguez is kind of a, a blend of both. Yep. Uh, Everson Pereira, when they signed him, it was more, I'd say, probably more hit than power. Um, like you said, with, with George Lombard, uh, Arias, probably a, maybe a little blend of each, but um, it, it just seems like the... Yeah, the overall hitting philosophy has been, you know, where we're we seeing these guys kind of shift their offensive profile to emphasize hitting the ball hard, even if it comes at the expense of more swing and miss. It just like you talk to scouts from other organizations and, you know, w- whether you agree with them or not, like the criticism or just the general feedback that mm. comes back is yeah a lot of these guys are you know bigger and stronger and they hit yeah. the ball hard and they have a swing that's geared to lift the ball but the swings can sometimes get or or tend to get you know whether you want to call it grooved or one dimensional and lacking that adjustability to uh you know, square up and and react to pitches that aren't in the zones uh, or aren't the pitch types that they're necessarily anticipating. Mm. Uh, you see a lot more empty swings from that. So, yeah. Um, but 
you know, you can still be, uh, and, and sometimes to their, it can be to your advantage to be able to tap into more power at the expense of some swing and miss, but, uh, other times you get to the big leagues and, oh yeah, the pitching is a lot better in the big <laughs> leagues than it is in, you know, the guys you're facing in high A or, or in double A. Yeah, the the Statcast farm system rankings that Jeff and Dylan did for the site in early November had the Yankees as having the third best 90th percentile exit velocity among all orgs behind just the Cubs and the Astros. So it's no surprise to see them ranking highly there, just given given how it seems like they they really prioritize exit velocity either in in their acquisition of players or or in their development of players after the fact so that's just a fun little wrinkle of how they do things that maybe drives yankees fans crazy depending on time of year and the results of uh their big league team but uh clearly is something that the most teams are folding in in some um some way or another but any other thoughts on yankees before we move on to boston aka the BA headquarters 2.0 uh yeah i like the Certainly like the top of the Red Sox system. I mean, Roman Anthony, one of the biggest risers in yeah. baseball this year, like coming into the draft, if you'd said, oh, yeah, uh, Roman Anthony, we're going to be talking about him as a top, not even just top 100, but top 50, mm. top 25 prospect in baseball. Yep. I, I think you would have said, all right, <laughs> shut up then. <laughs> and, first... and I would have said that to myself, too. First time that I saw Roman Anthony in the 2023, is that right? Or 2022? Uh, yeah, 2022 draft cycle was at the high school all-star game. And his first three at-bats, he struck out each time and looked pretty lost at the plate. His fourth at-bat, he stepped into the box and hit an absolutely monstrous home run <laughs> to the pull side. And really throughout the rest of that summer and fall, that's, that's how I viewed him as this all or nothing hitter who, who lacked an approach, had a real swing and miss concerns, but who had massive raw power. And when he connected, he could send the ball a long way. It was a great body. It was like a frame you could dream on. It was solid athletic foundation in the outfield. Uh, but it was just like, man, can this guy hit enough to get to his power? And now... Like pretty much as soon as he got into pro ball, it, it felt like the script entirely flipped. His end zone contact rates were phenomenal. His approach seemed extremely advanced. And, and to Roman's credit, there were rumors about an improved approach during the spring of his draft year before he got into pro ball. So clearly this is something he was working on prior to getting into Boston. But the way that he's talked about as a hitter and some of like the underlying metric, metrics that he's shown us... Um, are honestly just shocking given given my my like entire summer of watching him um and, and i think it's really encouraging for him as a player because i do think that the tools haven't really gone anywhere and and i'd still be really excited about his power potential moving forward he's still going to be in just his age 20 season next year uh so he is a, a pretty fun prospect and another example of like just because the player is a certain way the first time you see them like these guys can still change a lot uh change their approach whether it's changing mechanics or just how you go about trying to hit that you need to pay attention to. Was it similar or how would you compare the uh, kind of the all or nothingness with the big power or, or at least the perception of him at the time uh, of big power with swing and miss wrist to, uh, to James Wood, who mm. became a, you know, obviously was a, another super high profile player yeah. going into the draft cycle and then went the second round to the Padres. And then a year later, it was like, 
oh boy, this guy looks like a monster. <laughs> yeah, his was almost the opposite in a lot of ways because when I saw James Wood during the summer, it was really impressive how much contact he was making. Like he was this big, lanky frame, long levers, the the sort of profile with power that you typically expect to have those swing and miss questions. But he would expand the zone and still get the barrel on the ball against pretty impressive velocity. Like his his plate coverage and contact skills were shockingly good for a player of his build and, and the length of his swing. And then during his draft spring with IMG Academy, it was kind of the opposite. Like there was a lot of swing and miss questions then that came up. I, I wasn't watching him as much, but it was a lot of feedback from scouts that he looked overwhelmed. Like it was like, is he too low of a heartbeat kind of guy? Like... Big questions of that because he was a guy who who moved down from Maryland to Florida, and there were questions about oh, like good competition has caught up to him, which I was trying to like figure out in my head because he just had the summer showcase circuit where he's presumably hitting against the best pitchers in the class, and he did quite well. So, so in a lot of ways, those those two players were flipped in terms of their platform summer versus their draft springs. Um, so I was always probably higher on James Wood and lower on Roman Anthony, just given when I saw them relative to like what they are now. So for sense. you is the, yeah, it, it seems like the summer is something you would put more weight into. Mm-hmm. Like if a guy, let's say like a guy struggles in the summer, but then like the next spring he comes out and he looks great. Obviously it's, you know, looks great is different for a high school player in uh, you know, in Wisconsin versus a high school player at IMG Academy in Florida or in Southern California. Yeah. Uh, but that, like, you would be more lenient toward the maybe the the player who looked awesome the summer before, but mm. come the spring, a little bit more up and down or, or struggle or just wasn't. Yeah. Quite I think sharp it's the scouts we're hoping for. I think it's probably a little bit of like your anchoring bias and the information asymmetry that you have with your live looks versus like what you're hearing about. Because I will see some of the high school players in the spring, but it's a lot harder to target high school players in bulk in the spring. And so therefore it Definitely. makes more sense to, to see college players. Cause if you go to a college series, you're seeing a large quantity of really good draft prospects. Whereas for high school, you kind of have to tack those guys on unless you're going to like some sort of tournament like uh, NHSI or Boris Classic or something like that. Uh, I guess Southern California might be different just given the, the the access to talent you have. But I, I think that I probably steer more towards like valuing the summer more in general because the competition is at a level that I feel more confident in. However, I think both of these guys are, are good examples of why there is still actionable information that you can get for hitters in the spring, even though both Roman Anthony and James Wood are Florida guys. And you generally feel better about Florida competition than like you said, like some other state that just isn't known as, as producing this talent. And it also depends what these changes are. Like Jackson holiday is a great example of a guy who significantly improved his stock in the spring. And while the performance was obviously really impressive, a lot of that is because the tools came out and were better. He was faster. He was stronger. Like the body was different. Um, if you had a player who really struggled over the summer, came out next spring and was not in one of these powerhouse areas of the country and really dominated their high school competition, but didn't look any different physically or mechanically, 
then I would wonder like, okay, how much of this is just him dominating the competition that he should be dominating because he's just better than people he's playing. So I think a lot of it just depends on like, how has the approach changed? How has the swing changed? How have the tools changed? And like projecting that out in the future, does that change like your overall opinion on this player? Uh, and it can be tricky from my perspective when I'm trying to balance my personal looks versus like the actual reporting, which which should drive um, more of the changes to the list. And, and that that's what the list should actually wind up being like. But I don't know, I'm kind of I feel like I'm rambling here, but it is fascinating to think through. Yeah. And a lot of times in the spring, we're not talking about huge sample sizes either. Guys could be. Yeah, you know, understand. You know, draftitis is the word for it, right? Like you're just, you're, it's your draft year. You know it. Everybody's there to see you, and you just start pressing. You're just trying to start. You just start trying to do too much. You get out of your game. Yep. Um, which you know, you maybe you can put into the, you know, makeup or mentality bucket if that's a red flag for you. Um, not especially so for me, but, um, but yeah, we we see that. Um, happening sometimes to players. I don't know if that was the case with James Wood or not, but uh, clearly all the strikeouts that he had, <laughs> like well, he had a higher strikeout rate at IMG Academy in high school than he did when he went out to low A baseball. Yeah, that's actually shocking to think about. <laughs> yeah. Like, in, it also is interesting too with with all these players who move around, like how much is just off the field changes impacting what you're doing? We see a lot of players who are moving around, whether it's just to get more exposure or because you want to play against better competition. Um, it, it's fairly common now. The academy structure is becoming more and more popular for top players to take advantage of. Like I, I definitely think there are benefits for them. I'm not saying this is like a bad thing, but even outside of like competition questions or what's your skills on the field, like I have to imagine for a high school player who's kind of just up and leaving what they're used to. It, it, it has a, a big effect on you, especially when you add on to it, just the scrutiny they're getting regularly from the scouting industry and they know what's at stake. Yeah. Would you, if you had to pick one, would you take Roman Anthony? Or would you take Marcelo Meyer at this point? Cause Marcelo Meyer did not have a great year, but mm. obviously with some pretty, a pretty significant caveat that, Oh yeah. It turned out that, after he got off to that really good start, he came back uh, after hurting his shoulder, was playing through a pretty significant shoulder injury that didn't seem to get <laughs> any better until they shut him down. And then he said, yeah, actually, mm. uh, I was playing with a, a shoulder that <laughs> was <laughs> not close to 100%. Yeah, I think I would still lean towards um, Marcella Meyer just mostly because of the positional difference and the value I think Marcelo can bring um, as a left-handed hitting shortstop with what I would say are reasonably similar offensive profiles right now. It's kind of crazy to think about them being as close as they are right now as I would have expected prior to Anthony's draft year. Like, I think it's just a testament to what Roman Anthony has done. And, and I'm also willing to kind of give Marcelo a bit of a mulligan because of the end injury we talked about on this podcast we've looked at like pre-injury versus post-injury in the production um that he didn't have after the fact like if he comes back next year and it's basically what he did before getting injured it's like a really exciting player it's an all-around um potential middle of the order type of hitter with good defense either at shortstop or third base wherever he winds up playing like i would rather have that prospect than anthony who has 
similar raw power, um, maybe similar pure hitting potential as well, but it's going to be in the outfield. I just think that the difference in the shortstop versus the outfielder is probably significant for me. How about you? I would agree with giving Meyer the edge right now. And like you said, if he comes out and looks like the Marcelo Meyer we saw at the very beginning of the year in 2023, mm. awesome. On the other hand, <laughs> if we're sitting here at the end of May having this conversation and Marcelo Meyer mm. is struggling again yeah. in double A, then there's like there's the potential for a cinder block to be <laughs> attached mm-hmm. to his ranking and, and see it fall off quite a bit. Because right now I yeah, we are giving him the benefit of the doubt based mm-hmm. on what we saw early in the season, what we've seen from him throughout his career, like, you know, th- this is a beautiful swing. I, I think he can play, I, I think he can really play shortstop. I mean, the thing about shortstop versus third base might just be more dependent on, okay, if, if you have another great, you know, defensive shortstop on your team, okay, maybe you put Meyer over at third and he'll be a plus or a potential plus plus defender at third base. And uh, if he's the kind of, hitter you think he's going to be then yeah the battle fit there too although maybe 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 a bad example third base with the red Sox, unless you're uh moving rafael dever somewhere too but uh, either way i i think he's a true shortstop who can defend the position of like Mm -hmm. he'll he'll fall right in that mix of my theory of you know you don't have to be a big runner Mm -hmm. uh, to be a shortstop i think he has yep the anticipation the internal clock uh, the body control, everything else, uh, including the range to be able to, to play that position. Yeah. I would like to actually put eyes on, on Roman Anthony now and see if he like feels like a different player in person based on when a lot of my looks came. But I do think it's interesting comparing them athletically. Like if, if Marcelo Meyer comes out next, next year and doesn't look quite as good, I, I do think Roman Anthony is probably the better overall athlete and like how that allows him to adapt up the minors as he, as he progresses in his career versus Meyer, like that will be interesting to maybe think through. Um, so I would give Meyer the edge, like profile wise, as a really good shortstop, and Anthony the edge as like a raw athlete. I think he's a, a pretty impressive, like runner. The raw power. It, it's interesting to look at both their raw power on the data because it's pretty similar. Um, it wouldn't shock me if Roman Anthony wound up having better top end power numbers at the end of the day, though. Yeah, they're both yeah. fun. Fun to think through. No, two two elite guys. Is there anybody else in the system that jumps for you? Are you a a big Kyle Teal guy, or is there somebody else? Who... <laughs> Kyle Teal is a ton of fun. Um, it's not a profile that I should be a T-shirt. <laughs> it's not a profile that I really love because I think there are some question marks. I, I don't love his swing specifically. There's a lot of moving parts. It's a very high effort swing, but despite that, like his contact has been impressive. His swing decisions have been impressive, both in college and so far in pro ball. I'm really curious to see how he looks over a full season defensively. Like I mentioned with Roman Anthony being a really impressive athlete, Cal Teal is also a a tremendous athlete. I think he's got impressive upside defensively. It was weird hearing about some of these split camp opinions on him as a defender, as an amateur. Um, just given that athletic foundation and the fact that I think he's got a plus arm uh, to go with it. So I think he's got a ton of upside. I'm just kind of curious, what does the hit and power settle into? 
do those moving parts become more of a problem as he moves up up in the minors uh, as he gets challenged more with better pitching will he have to quiet it down or is he just such a freak that he's able to make that work it wouldn't shock me if he had to sacrifice some hit to maintain like average or near average power but i also don't really expect him to be this big power hitter in the first place so i think he can be quite valuable as like a solid average or above average defender with a solid hit tool with fringy or below average power like that's still a really good player especially as a left-handed hitter he's fun just because the athlete is so good like is he going to keep running probably not most catchers don't run but he, he's a really good runner he's a good base stealer so i just think he's a fun player to watch and just an unusual sort of profile um, but certainly one i'm looking forward to seeing over a full season and and most importantly like how are the pro scouts seeing his defense? Like, what is that actually looking like? Mm. Yeah, it seems like we do get sometimes very different reports on a player's, on a catcher's, a college catcher's defense. Um, sometimes, as soon as they. Yeah, Ryan Jeffers, say, Cal Raleigh, both those two are guys who like catching was almost written off for them at some levels, and they turn out to be either good or perfectly fine. Yeah, or and sometimes they just get like the report on them at the time as an amateur isn't even necessarily wrong, but they get into pro ball and oh like, yeah, you actually now, have instruction. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, not just instruction, but just more time too. Mm -hmm. Like, no, you don't have to worry about school anymore, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> that was part can... of the reason I was excited to see what Kevin Parada could do defensively, but. Uh... I was gonna say, I was still need some positive reason, signs on that one. <laughs> part of the reason I was excited to start working at Baseball America, so I don't have to worry about school anymore. Oh, 100%. I agree with, <laughs> I agree with that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, one of the biggest X factors in the system is Miguel Blaze, who mm. uh, another guy with a shoulder injury this year. And when he was healthy, wasn't great, obviously, offensively, but... The year before, as an 18-year-old in the Florida Complex League, he hit well there, and he's a just a beautiful athlete to uh, you know just to watch him run around in center field. Uh, plus, runner he can throw. Uh, there's a lot of power in there because there's a lot of bat speed uh, for somebody still pretty lean and has more strength projection to that frame. So there's a chance for more power to come, but. Um, the injury and then the struggles that he had once he did get to full season ball, like high, high risk. He, he might never make it, you know, past double a or triple a, uh, if he does end up hitting, he could end up being the number one, like he, he could end up being the number one prospect in the system. He has that kind of, uh, upside, but, uh, some pretty significant, risk factors there too between the offensive struggles that he had when he was healthy and then the shoulder injury on top of it yeah it's pretty fun to dream on a guy who might have four plus tools so if he can't hit that's fascinating what, what stood out to me when you were talking about him just mentioning again another high-end athlete is just how much boston seems to prioritize athleticism uh, if you just look at their 2023 draft class, I mean, their first two players that they took, Kyle Teal in the first round at 14, and then Mazan Zanatello in the second round, who, again, was a polarizing prospect um, in general. Kyle Teal, we talked about some maybe split camp opinions on his feelings specifically, but I think Zanatello 
was polarizing overall, just because everyone is really excited about the athlete and the secondary tools, but there are questions about how much he's actually going to hit. Uh, but it's interesting to think through like the lens of athleticism and how the Red Sox view that and value that in their prospects. It definitely seems to be something they're targeting, or at least they, they prioritize. Do you think so? Or maybe there was just more in the draft this year. Cause I think to like, like, I don't think like the, you know, they took Mikey Romero in the first round. I don't think of him as like an elite athlete. I think you were mm. more sold on the, or buying the bat, which yeah. obviously is not proven uh, great at this point. Or, I think or, with, or, you or, still or have York too. You have Roman Anthony in that me. draft class. You have Cutter, Cutter Coffee in that draft class. Let me go back. I mean, I could be over analyzing. I mean, you even have Judd Fabian in the second round in 2021. So m- maybe this is a case of me getting like laser focused on some of the just the athletes in the system and trying to layer that philosophically on them when I shouldn't. But it, it it jumped out to me at the draft, and then when you when you brought in Blaze, and when we talked about Roman Anthony, um, it's just like a, a commonality with a lot of their top guys. So so maybe I'm reading into it too much, but we have talked about a lot of impressive athletes. I'd be curious to know how important they view it internally now. Yeah, the guy. I mean, internationally, who I'm pretty excited about is is Yoelian Cespedes, a you know Dominican. Uh, infielder uh, probably goes you know second base third base is he an athlete no he's he's (laughs) he's way more in the shorter hitter ish camp Mm, Uh, okay yeah he's you know smaller guy you know five five eight five nine kind of stocky strong type frame he he was in the dsl this year he had a, a big season there hit six home runs 346 392 560 uh, just supreme hand-eye coordination makes a ton of contact. Uh, very aggressive. Like he has that. Uh, he ha- he has the ability to swing at pitches in the zone and make contact. Swing at pitches out of the zone and make contact. Swing at those. He seems like one of those hitters who has such good barrel accuracy that it's led to like an approach that maybe is going to be too aggressive uh, in a few years, but he can probably get away with at this point. Yeah, I think, yeah, as he moves up the system, he's going to need to become more selective because there's just very few guys who can get away with that type of, like, almost, f- yeah, free swinging. I-, I wouldn't call him a free swinger, actually. That's that's not really him, but it's uh, – he- he's definitely not a selective hitter. He- he's very mm-hmm. aggressive to a fault. Yeah, uh, it's not really going to get exposed in the Dominican Summer League or next year when he comes over. And uh, I presume it will be a step by step guy and play mm. in the Gulf Coast League. But uh, he the thing is, he's he's smaller. He he has power. It's not just oh, a bunch of singles and you know, occasional balls in the gap and slap and dash kind of guy. It's it's all that's always been um the case with him since he was probably like 15 or 16 talking to scouts about him in the Dominican Republic. They're like, man, I, I wish he was like six foot two, but he, he <laughs> I don't know. Like he already hits the ball like, uh, like a man at this point. So, and we saw that obviously this year in the DSL, um, you know, defensively, it sounds like he's gotten better, but this is really an, an offensive minded mm-hmm. guy. He'll play somewhere, somewhere in the infield. Um, you know, maybe some more, maybe some reps at shortstop, but uh, probably long term. Whether it's uh, 
I don't know, maybe second, third, but uh, wouldn't move him off the position yet for any reason, but uh, definitely a lot to like there offensively. You know, as you're talking about his swing rate, I have um, all of the hitters in these top tens we're talking about today in a spreadsheet, and I was just sorting by swing percentage. Uh, Yoelin Cespedes has the third highest overall swing rate at 52.5%. The top three are all Boston Red Sox prospects. Sedane Rafaela is the number one. Marcelo oh, Meyer yeah. was two. So my new theory is that Boston drafts players who like to swing the bat. <laughs> Although Roman Anthony is the antithesis of that. <laughs> was he... He's at the bottom of the list? Yeah, he was one of the most passive in terms of overall swing rate. He was um, the, the fourth least aggressive, I guess. So his overall swing rate was 37% compared to all those three that I just mentioned who were 52 or higher. Um so. Yeah, so I, I think him and then, uh, you know, Luis Perales have been high on him for, I mean, literally since he signed. I saw him pitching the, uh, I think it was either a Tricky League game or a Dominican Instructs game like a few months after he signed. And, hmm. uh, loved him then. He said, you know, missed the, you know, one season because of the pandemic. And then he's had trouble staying healthy, but it's, it's an electric fastball that he has. I think there's, even though he's not that big of a guy, I think there's a lot of starter traits there. Uh, we'll need to throw more strikes, but mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's big stuff, a, a chance to really jump up this list next year if he's able to, uh, again, stay healthy mm-hmm. and throw more, uh, you know, throw more pitches in the zone because it's you know he's he's sitting big 90s it's up to 99 uh, it plays up because uh, of the life the extension yeah the ride and the extension for that fastball sound pretty elite i mean we have a 70 on on the pitch for good reason so that that, that pitch specifically looks really exciting yeah mm-hmm. and um you know i i'm a I, I like what i've seen from the breaking stuff with him too so mm-hmm. I, I think there's some starter-ish stuff there from maybe a guy who doesn't fit the physical uh initial look of somebody you'd think would be a starter how concerning would would the physique be for you not not a lot really yeah. um yeah i don't uh, shocking I don't, I don't really mind like shorter yeah pitchers um i, I think we've seen so many pitchers over the years who are not six three six four like sure if you're trying to project more um velocity or something like that from a pitcher uh yeah like i'll take the guy who's uh six four hundred eighty pounds yeah you don't really need to project too much on this fastball though so yeah i mean he has so much arm speed too i mean (laughs) talk about the physicality uh, or just the physical side like the size height weight limbs all that but if you have a ton of arm speed and you're six feet tall or five eleven, <laughs> you can still throw really hard, and, and you can still be a uh, a really good pitcher too, and a starter. Yeah. All right. Uh, any other ones to talk about in the Red Sox system, or should we move on to the Blue Jays? Uh, did you have anybody else? I didn't have anyone else. No, I'm good. Yeah, the Blue Jays. Yeah, they're definitely a clear uh, five in the yeah. division, right? I like think I, so. Yeah. I feel like this is the one org that I would put in the 21 to 30 range pretty confidently at this stage. Um, whereas I don't think any of the others in the system are, are all that close. 
So maybe this puts a little more sting in not getting Otani when we're also downplaying the farm system. But you might be more optimistic than me on the Blue Jays farm. I think they have one player who's a definite top 100 prospect, and then you could make a case for two others if you want it to be aggressive. But mm-hmm. uh, I think most likely it'll be one or one or two at the end. Yeah, and so the one who's like clearly going to be there is Ricky Tiedemann, left-handed pitcher with really loud stuff, um, big frame, big stuff to go with it. He's very scary to me at the same time, just given how he's been handled, given some of the injury questions, just the innings that he's pitched um, in, in both seasons now in pro ball, or, or I guess I should say, yeah, two seasons. Um, pitched well in the AFL. I don't know how much that does or doesn't change your perspective on Ricky Tiedemann, but when he's on the mound and pitching, it's some of the best pure stuff among all prospects in the game at this point. I find myself being more scared of him than I feel like maybe his prospect status warrants. Talk to me a little bit about Ricky Tiedemann and where you're at with him. Because, I mean, the fastball sounds exceptional. The slider sounds really good. Like, between the fastball slider and the changeup, he could have nothing but plus pure stuff. But at the same time, I just look at, like, the usage rate, how much he's pitched, some of the injury questions, some of the health scares he's had. And I'm I'm just kind of worried about what it's going to look like over a full season so that's kind of where I'm at with, with Tiedemann. I think if if there's a disagreement on Tiedemann among anybody, it's probably not going to be with the stuff, right? Like I, I don't think any of us, whether you're, you know, you think Ricky Tiedemann, hmm. you know, like if you, you could say Ricky Tiedemann is the best left-handed pitching prospect in the game right now. Yeah. You can make that case. And if you think he belongs way lower, I don't whether you think he's number one or, or should be you know significantly lower on the list. I think the disagreement comes from the durability risk mm-hmm. and not a disagreement on stuff because when he is on the mound, when he's healthy, it's it's dominant stuff and it's not just oh he's blowing people away with a you know one pitch a fastball or yeah it's or almost how I think about Daniel Espino. Ooh. Uh, I mean, Espino has been actually off the bump longer. And so maybe like the injury concern is more obvious there. But like I, I think of that, like my concern and also my want to dream on their pure stuff and see them on the mound is similar. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean in that respect. I mean, Tiedemann has gone to the upper levels and like actually pitched and we've seen him pitching more than Espino who, is is unfortunate because I love Daniel Espino, but man, r- rough. That's a rough one for Guardians fans because like I, mm-hmm. I like I, I'd have trouble putting him anywhere higher than maybe the back of a top one hundred now because he's just barely pitched in the. It's some pretty significant injury concerns with him, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I tend to share the concerns that you have. I think with Ricky Tiedemann, where I, I love the stuff that he has, but he missed like what three months this year mm-hmm. with the, I think it was like the biceps injury uh, or the bi- yeah, left bicep sprain that he had this year. And you can just see with the way the Blue Jays treated him this year, barely any starts more than 
three innings, almost nothing more than four innings at a time. Uh, so we're seeing him go through a lineup once, <laughs> maybe partway through a, a second time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we did see a little bit more of it in the AFL. I think that does that does matter. It's not totally moving the needle in a, a major way mm-hmm. for me, but between his inability to uh, stay on the field this year and then the way the Blue Jays handled him so carefully when he came back, like I think even, you know, you can just see even they're showing you, mm-hmm. yeah, like obviously they like him too, but they have pretty significant concerns about his ability to hold up as a starting pitcher. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to have a lot of conviction what he is going to be. I think his, like the, the outcomes that he could have are as extreme as maybe anyone that we've talked about. Oh, it could be a front end starter. Yeah. Yeah. So like if you are for whatever reason, just more optimistic about him being healthy, like it makes sense. Like, like if you're not as concerned as me and you are about the durability, it makes sense to shove him really high up a lift, uh, up a list. He's a, he's a left-handed pitcher with a great frame with elite stuff. Like those are the kind of pitchers that, that you dream about getting, but yeah, it's, it's hard for me to fully buy in until he's like actually turned in a full season where you see him work through the order a few times um, just see him stack more innings. That's really all I want to see him do. Um, but we, we talked about Ricky Tiedemann a lot. If there's something else you want to mention, feel free. But we can work work down the list. There are some interesting well, we hitters should, to talk I was going to say, we should talk about him. He's got you know three uh, potential plus or better pitches, and he's been, uh, you know, he, like as much as we're talking about the risk, he's still, you know, you could still find people who would put him among the top, you know, two, three, four pitching prospects in all of baseball. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, who who do you want to move to next? Because I'm intrigued by Arjun Namala, but there might be players in front of him that you want to touch on first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Arjun Namala is definitely intriguing. I mean, mm. one of the youngest players in the draft, the kind of super high upside body power uh, and that power to right center field is very, very intriguing for a, a young shortstop. Yeah, I mean, he's one of these players who, again, just has felt very different pre-draft to what we saw post-draft. Like, one of my biggest concerns with Namala was just his approach, his overall approach. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he hasn't had a huge sample of pro ball time, but in in the time that he did did have, scouts were really impressed with with the approach, with his swing decisions, with his overall contact. And if you told me that about Namala, that he was showing a good approach, not chasing much, making a lot of contact in zone, but also maybe not showing off huge power. That's like the inverse of what I would have expected you to see because he has pretty phenomenal hand speed and bat speed and a projectable frame and showed solid raw power. I thought for sure he was going to be some power over hit player. Uh, Again, it'll be curious to see what those numbers look like and what the approach looks like over a full season. But he's he's super fascinating because of the youth, because of the tool set. I think he has really solid actions defensively. He's another one of those players who probably isn't the quickest and, and maybe some of the short area agility might make you concerned about whether he'll stick at the position. Um, but in terms of, of hands, glove work, footwork, arm strength, like I think he has all, all the opportunity to stick there and be a good defender at the position. So he's just very fascinating to me trying to find out like what the true offensive profile is 
and was very much a polarizing player in last year's draft class. Like there were some people that were super high on him, thought of him as like some top 15 type and, and others who were maybe just more concerned about some of the question marks and red flags that he showed as a hitter. Yeah, I think you summed it up well. If if I had to bet on, you know, power over hit versus hit over power, uh, I'd say it's probably going to be more power over hit. He's he's young. He already has, I think, pretty big raw power. And he yeah. has a kind of frame where, like, he's going to be – he's going to get even stronger. Like, he just turned 18, like, a couple minutes ago. Like, <laughs> he's – He's he, he could basically be a twenty twenty four. I mean, imagine him in the if he was in the twenty twenty four draft, dude, like what Connor Griffin, PJ Morlando, Namala, like Bonimer, mm-hmm. who yep. like whoever else you want to put in there, like he one hundred percent fits there. If not, like maybe like one or two <laughs> in mm-hmm. that class. I mean, we could say a lot of these things, I guess, <laughs> about players in in the twenty twenty three draft, but. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a lot of upside. I, I yeah, some there's some risk with the bat to ball, and then uh, you know maybe shortstop maybe moves off the position and and outgrows it and and goes to third. And I think certainly has the offensive upside to uh, to project there um, if if he's able to make enough contact because there's there are a lot of components to like mm-hmm. to his offensive game. Uh, but yeah, I think he, he does come with more risk than say, uh, you know, like a, like a Colt Emerson who the Mariners drafted or, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah, obviously like more power upside, but, uh, not the pure hitter of a, a Kevin McGonagall or something mm-hmm. like that. So, um, yeah, he was frequently comped to Alfonso Soriano. What do you think about that one? Physically? Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. It's mm-hmm. that, that, that kind of body type just to paint a picture makes sense where it's yeah that super high waist uh where you just look at him and you're like yeah that looks that looks different hmm. yeah uh, i mean i feel like this whole blue jay system has a lot of risk one of the next players i'm looking at is brandon barriera he was a, a left-handed pitcher drafted 23rd in 2022 the, the 2022 class for the blue jays right now is not looking so hot but barrier is a guy who struggled with injuries he, he kind of had some weight questions as well hasn't really pitched a ton has shown solid stuff when healthy but but i think his pro future has only been more kind of confusing as, as to projecting him out in the future are there any players that you feel are safe bets or safer profiles than a Tiedemann who has the durability questions namala we have some of these approach questions, Barriera, who's been injured. Like, is there anyone you feel confident in moving forward? Or do you think this is just a, a volatile system overall? I guess the concern that I have is there's nobody who I feel comfortable about being either a, you know, outside of, well, and, and Tiedemann, obviously, we talked about the risk with him, but mm-hmm. there's nobody who I really feel certain or highly confident in being a like a league average everyday regular position player uh, or somebody who I, I again really feel confident can be a back end or better uh, like a number four number th- you know or, or mid rotation number three type starting pitcher. I think there mm-hmm. are players in the system who could get to that. Um, like Orelvis Martinez. I was going to ask certainly, what you thought about him. Yeah, he, he certainly has the talent to do that, but 
uh, you know, then you look beyond these top handful of guys we talked about, and it's, uh, you know, there there are guys who have intriguing traits, but there's also a lot of players who just seem more like role player types than guys you can kind of count on being kind of core to a, a, a team. But uh, yeah, I mean, with Orelvis Martinez, he's been he's been pushed really aggressively. I mean, when they jumped him to double a in 2022 i was i was surprised they did that because he'd only been he's 20 years old mm-hmm. he'd only been in high a the previous year for like a month uh and he wasn't good there yeah. so <laughs> you know it's it's i don't think you're like killing a guy's career or anything by having him struggle for a year at a low level he's too Advanced. Yeah, in in twenty twenty two, he was almost four years younger than the league average in Double A, and then in twenty twenty three, he spent time in Double A and Triple A, and at the Triple A level, he was more than five years younger than the average player there. Um, so he has been pushed pretty aggressively. The, the The Blue Jays also seem like an org that like places a real priority on age, both in in their player acquisition and maybe they're one of the teams that just likes when their players are challenged at levels um, like beyond their peers. Maybe that's a factor. It could also be me just reading into things too much, but it definitely feels like, I mean, we talked about with um, Arjun Namala, him being like his age was one of the biggest positive indicators for, for him, for, for teams with models that, that really prioritize that in hitters. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it factors into their decision-making in terms of acquiring players. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it, like, I don't think they're trying to like choose some other teams Ben, to... you know you you are on the conspiracy train. Do you think whether or not this is Martinez specifically, but do you think teams will push players so that they do look more appealing to a model because of their age relative to the level, even if maybe they weren't ready? I definitely think that happens. Not not specifically saying that the Blue Jays did this or or wanted to do this with Martinez specifically, but I've just heard too many people talk about that for me to not think that happens trying to like game models. Uh, I think it'd be, I think it's pretty rare for that. Wow. This is a rare, rare uh, instance of me being more of a conspiracy theorist than you on the pod. Well, if it's true, it's not a conspiracy. (laughs) I need to demonize. Oh, wow. Any of this. The no, I like. I, I think there's reasons. There, there were reasons, I guess, that the Blue Jays had to promote him to Double A in uh, in 2022. Uh, I, I mean, he's a really talented player, and he hit 30 home runs there. But he was just, you know, you know, just swinging at too many pitches, swinging at too many breaking balls, especially uh, just a lot of a lot of swing and miss. That even with you know 30 home runs, he also hit 203 and had a 286 on base. But this past season, he he was much better. Now, is he going to be a three hundred hitter ever? Like pro- probably not. I, I don't. I mean, he's a two thirty nine hitter in the minors, so that would be pretty surprising. <laughs> yeah, look, like this year it was two forty three, three forty, four ninety six with twenty eight home runs between Double A AA and Triple A as a twenty one year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has he has easy power. It's just a lot of strength. A lot of bat speed. He can just um, not that he just flicks his wrist in his swing, but he can just flick his wrist, and the ball will fly off his bat. So um, you know, we we saw improvements this year with his with his contact, with his swing decisions. Um, 
it, it's still not great, but it's gotten to the point where it's, I, I think it can be good enough for it to work, but still like that, that's still a pretty significant risk factor for a guy who, you know, really is not a, a shortstop. I think that's been clear uh, ever since they signed him or even uh, in the scouting process that, yeah, you're, you're buying the bad, you're buying the power, you're buying the offensive game and, you know, hopefully uh, can maybe, you know, fit at third base. Uh, it sounds like maybe second base now, uh, yeah, maybe just depending on the construct of the Blue Jays lineup in terms of where he'll fit in that organization or, or if he ends up being a, a trade piece. So um, there's definitely upside there, but uh, the kind of the, the roller coaster of his career is uh, still a little bit scary with him. Yeah, absolutely. But again, like the fact that he has shown this sort of power and is just 21 years old, like has to feel excited about what the potential adjustments he could continue to make. He still has time on his side for sure. Uh, any other prospects further down inside this top 10 or even beyond the top 10 in the system that, that you want to mention or talk through? Is Davis Schneider going to be the star of the future for the Blue Jays? Um, uh, <laughs> what do you think? No. No. I don't think so. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, nice, solid player, but mm-hmm. that's, you know, that, that's kind of the thing with the rest of the system is there's some solid players who I think can be big leaguers, but nobody who we're banking on yeah. uh, outside of maybe, uh, you know, again, outside of that top group that I think has the upside to develop into some impact potential beyond that hard to get a really squint to project yeah. that from them. Where would you draw the line of those players? Is it top three for you stopping at Namala? Would you go down to Barriera still? Like how far down would you go before you like draw your line at like who you perceive as impact types? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a big year for Barriera mm-hmm. uh, this season. Cause he obviously big expectations and, and a lot to like too coming out of the draft uh, in 2022 and then just didn't, I mean, just didn't pitch that much (laughs) this year. So, all right. Well, any, any final thoughts on any of these systems, um, or how you're viewing them at this point, who you're most excited about any, any final thoughts, I guess on, on the prospects conversation before we move into some listener questions. Uh, Uh, do you have any sleepers outside of the tens from this or I'll give you, I mean, this org specifically, or just from any East team. Like I I really like Santiago Suarez, um, with the Rays. Um, good, good young pitching prospect, obviously a lot of risk that comes with that too. Um, just being so far away from big leagues using, I guess he got to low at the end of the season, but mostly in the pitch in the Florida complex league, but uh, between the two levels, 152 ERA, 59 and a third innings, uh, 52 strikeouts, 11 walks, um, 18 years old guy they traded for. He's the, you know, Marlon signed him out of Venezuela. I, I think there's a lot of starter traits there. Um, Pretty pretty advanced pitchability, uh, fastball into the mid nineties. He's got feel for his secondary stuff. I think there's the potential for some more velocity to come. I think the Rays also just you know seem to know what they're doing with, with pitchers, both in terms mm-hmm. of the guys that they identify and then the way that they develop them. So um, you know, if he was in 
if he was in another organization, I'd, I'd like him too. But uh, it just seems like he's a guy who has a chance to make a, a big jump forward next year. Yeah, one name that I'm kind of excited about is just going through some of these draft classes, looking down the list, see if there's anything that popped to me. But I was really excited about Kyle Carr for the Yankees. He was their third-round pick, left-handed pitcher out of junior college, um, like you were talking about with, with the Rays doing a nice job with pitching. I think the Yankees have done a pretty good job with pitching as well. I mean, he's been up to 97. He's athletic. He's got a lot of physical projection remaining. Uh, I think it's a solid athletic foundation as well. He's flashed a good slider that that could be a sharp pitch and a nice weapon for him. He hasn't thrown a change up too much. So I'm curious to see like what they're able to get out of Carr. He was a guy who leading up to the draft, there were a few bullpens that he threw that were apparently really exciting. So he's, he's a guy who has now stuff. And I think a lot of projection remaining that you can dream on him quite a bit so I'll, I'll be curious to see what he looks like next year at this time after being in the system for a year so that's one that i'll maybe point out mm. all right you want to get into some questions yeah bring them on all right so we got one from shaden on instagram who says where would leo devries rank in the 2024 high school draft class um and i gotta say ben when i saw this one i was like is this a guy that I'm missing in the 2024 draft <laughs> class? But I think this one is solidly intended for you. Uh, yeah, so it's a good question. Yeah, Leo Dallas DeVries is the Dominican shortstop who, for me, would be the number one prospect in the upcoming international signing class for January 15th, 2024. Uh, I saw him playing games in the Dominican Republic this year. Uh, he plays in a lot of games there. He's set to sign with the Padres for what should be one of the biggest bonuses of the signing period. Um, international players sign at 16 or 17. So uh, 2024 international player like DeVries, he would really fit age-wise with the 2025 high school class. Uh, you know, Ethan Holiday, Brady Ebel, uh, Coley James, Dean Moss, that whole group. Uh, but if you were to throw him into the 2024 draft among high school players, he would still go toward the top of that list. It's There's no obvious number one or even a clear-cut order at the top of the 2024 high school class. We've had Connor Griffin as the number one player for 2024 uh, ever since he reclassified from 2025, uh, going back to like June 2022 two in that update uh so almost a year and a half he's held that position uh right behind him is pj morlando who's a first baseman slash outfielder uh who i like uh one of the best hit power combos in the class i, I would have devries ahead of morlando I, I like morlando's offensive game but uh devries is also a really polished hitter uh, and a switch hitter swing works really well it's compact it's fluid path is you know it, it stays through the zone really well a lot of contact and he has power too it, it's not maybe pj morlando power right now but he can drive the ball with impact for his age and he's a year and a half younger than morlando and the obvious difference too is that he uh, has more positional value uh he's I don't, I don't know if DeVries sticks at shortstop, but there's at least a chance that he does. Otherwise, it's you know second base, third base. But 
Uh, he is an elite hitter for his age and he has power and he gives you more defensive value. So uh, DeVry would go ahead of him for me. Um, and if you want to compare him to Connor Griffin, I'll pick your flavor here. If you're looking for physicality, athleticism, tools, Griffin is your guy. Uh, if you want to bet on the player with the better pure hitting ability, uh, the, the sweeter swing, you would probably take DeVries. Uh, not to say that DeVries is lacking tools or, or athleticism, but um, uh, Griffin is just an exceptional athlete with exceptional tools. He's six foot four. He, he looks like he could be a, uh, like a superstar wide receiver if he wanted to do that. I'm glad we have an athlete like that playing baseball. Um, for me, I, I place a pretty high value on the hitting ability, the innate feel for the barrel uh, that DeVry has. So I, I would lean toward him, uh, but I think either way is defensible. And it's just a good way to show that uh, DeVry is a, a first round talent. Uh, even if you're putting him against high school players who are mostly a, a year uh, or a year and change older than him. Uh, he sounds uh, pretty exciting at this point. We've got another international question here from Marcus Zapia on Instagram. He asks, how often do teams try and sign away international amateurs who already have agreements? It happens every year. Um, uh, so just as a, like a basic overview International players sign beginning on January 15th every year, but those players, especially the high-profile ones, uh, they might be signing on that date uh, when they're 16 or 17, but they've reached agreements with clubs in advance, usually two, three years before, sometimes more. Uh, but as an international director put it to me once, um, you know, not everybody who gets engaged ends up getting married, uh, and there are different reasons why deals fall apart. Sometimes it's an issue with the physical. Uh, it could be an issue with a player failing a drug test for steroids. Uh, other times a team isn't happy with the way the player has developed in that time, uh, or <laughs> I guess depending on how you frame it, uh, realizes later on that their projection uh, was wrong uh, and they end up backing out of the agreement. Uh, either trying to uh, lower the bonus or, or just telling the player that they're not going to sign them. Uh, sometimes a team fires their GM and then the new GM comes in and he brings in his own people and uh, that the new international group or, or whoever, uh, you know, the GM trust says, no, like this, this player that we have an agreement for from the last group for a million dollars, he's not worth that. And, and they back out. Um, Sometimes they sign, uh, sometimes they end up signing a major league free agent who has the qualifying offer uh, attached and they end up losing like a million dollars or so in, in bonus pool space that they thought they were going to have. <laughs> uh, and then they have to go back to the player who, who they might still want to sign, but they say, oh, you, you got to wait until the next signing period now because we just don't have the money or, or take less money or or, you know, like just go out and try to get more money from another club, but <laughs> we get it. Uh, and and sometimes it's the player who backs out uh, too, which is less common, I think, uh, just because the teams have more power in the dynamic, but um, the player could just go out and get more money from another club. Um, as far as teams, though, going after a player who they know 
currently has a deal in place with another club. Yeah, that that does happen. It happens every year. I, I wouldn't say it's a common practice either necessarily. I, I think international directors, a lot of them are friends. Uh, you're probably spending half the year, uh, maybe 200 plus nights a year in that job on the road. So you're seeing each other at showcases, at games, at uh, random fields. Uh, a lot of times, not necessarily in the safest places in the world. Uh, and, and people just generally don't want to uh, burn their friends by trying to get a player who has a deal with somebody else to, uh, you know, get that player to back out of it and sign with them. Uh, or, or if not necessarily a friend, then just a colleague who uh, they respect, just a human side of it uh but uh also a very human side of things too is that uh some some humans don't like each other too so uh sometimes that dislike is because another team has tried to go after players that they already reached agreements with uh and that team says all right well these guys did it to us or, or they try to do it to us so why would we not return the favor uh, people are competitive. They want to sign good players. So um, if, uh, you know, if you hear about a, a pitcher who already has a deal because he reached a, an agreement for uh, $100,000 when he was 14 years old, when he was 84, 87, and now he's 16 and he's 89, 93, which is, you know, a very high end uh, velocity for that age, you know, good breaking ball, starter traits, loose, all that, whatever. Um, yeah, like that's that's the type of situation where where if, if you're the team that has the deal in place, uh, you might have to fight off other teams trying to get in there and sign the player. Uh, and it might, and, and I know in some cases it has happened, it might mean you're going to have to go back and pay the player more money to keep them from bolting somewhere else. Uh, or maybe you sign, you know, additional players from the same trainer, which gets into a different uh, area of what's permissible under MLB rules. Uh, with the bigger bonus players, the way the hard cap of the bonus pools works, it it creates challenges to being able to poach a player. So if you have a $2 million deal with a player, it's hard for another team to come in uh, at least like at this point in time and say, Hey, sign with us. We'll give you 2.5. We'll give you 3 million. Uh, Cause teams have mostly already committed most of their bonus pool money themselves already. They don't have 2.5. They don't have $3 million to be thrown around for uh, a 2024 player in, in 2023. It still does happen, but it, it creates a practical challenge to, uh, to doing it. So yeah, it, it absolutely happens. It happens every year. It happens with different players for different circumstances, but uh, most of the time we, we see these agreements hold up. Uh, and when they don't, uh, a lot of the time it's, it's not necessarily because another team is swooping in to try to poach the player, but uh, usually it's because there's something else going on that caused the deal to fall apart. Well, uh, Marcus, hopefully that was uh, more than an, a good enough answer for you. The the international market still, in a lot of ways, feels like a bit of the Wild West in baseball. 
Um, but pretty good breakdown from Ben there on kind of how everything unfolds. Got a couple more questions. Going to bring it back over to the domestic side of things. Zach Vasquez on Instagram asks, do you think drafting high school players might in any way stunt the development that those players would have gotten had they gone to college? This is a good question. Um, I think, and I'm curious what you think too with this, Ben, but I think in general, going towards pro ball, the incentives are more lined up. We've talked about this a number of times in the podcast as well. I think the incentives are, are much more lined up with players developing to their max of their abilities. But I do think there are interesting cases where players mentally just might not be ready to turn pro yet. And so college could be beneficial for them um, just as a human being. Uh, and if you're someone who's not ready to go pro and to go through that grind and to be out of a system that is like you're being thrown into a system where you're on the job 24 seven, if like you're not ready for that, I could definitely see a case where going to college is better for you. We've had pro players who've gone through the college route, um, give a lot of credit to the development they did in college, both on the field and off the field. Uh, so I think you really have to know the makeup and the maturity of the players to really answer this. And I also think, too, um, the current model for minor league baseball just has less maybe places available for high school players. And there's a financial component to this as well, obviously. Like high school players generally have high price tags. and you got to meet that bonus to, to get them signed. Um, but, I mean, the teams are very invested in getting the most out of these players developmentally. And I think on the college side, like – the incentives are much more aligned towards winning. And if you are not going to help the college win, uh, your playing time might be sacrificed. Um, I guess the same could be true as well on the pro side, depending on like the $2 million prospect versus the 19th round prospect, like the opportunities, if, if they're not readily available to every player are probably going to be more towards the high investment players. That's just, kind of a fact of baseball that's always been the case. Um, but I think it, it really just ultimately to answer your question, I think it depends on the specific player, where they're at mentally, where they're at makeup wise and what they need uh, at that stage of their life. But what are, what are your thoughts on this, Ben? I think the off field component is a good thing to mention because going out as a 18 or 19 year old and playing 140 uh, or, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of minor league games, uh, being on the bus rides, being in a very, very different environment than what you would be in college. Like some guys are not ready for that. Some some guys are not ready to go to college, <laughs> frankly. frankly. Yeah. Um, but I think overall the, the benefits are greater in uh, pro ball. Not to say that pro ball is the right choice for everybody, but if the – if your only goal is to get better as a baseball player, I think professional and and, yep. and professional baseball is the the optimal route. Uh, you're going out, you're playing right away with wood bats. Uh, you don't have to worry about school academics. Um, you don't. You have your full time focus is on playing baseball. You have more coaches at your disposal who are available to work with you um, uh, hitting coaches pitching coaches uh, nutritionists strength coaches everything uh, you know infield coordinators uh, you know 
base running coaches, everything. Uh, there's just a lot more, more focus, more resources. Um, you know, some, some, obviously the college facilities are, are great too. And, and there's a, a bit much bigger variance there too, uh, from, you know, the top end college programs to the, uh, you know, even like at the D one level, even just the lower end programs compared to, you know, the, the variance that you get from major league clubs. Uh, and then the playing time thing too is, is huge. I mean, if, if you're not good enough to play as a freshman, like, yeah, like you might be a big time recruit, but most freshmen don't play a lot. Um, certainly there are exceptions to that, but um most of them don't play and it's, you can get better without just playing in games, but it's better to go out and to be able to uh, play in games, whether you're, you know, whether you end up staying back in Arizona or Florida to play an extended spring training, like you're still playing games there uh, against other professional players. Um, so uh, that's part of it or, or, or just defensive development too. Like if you're at, Vanderbilt or LSU or wherever that team is trying to win. Like, okay, I want to develop as a catcher. Well, we, we already have a, a catcher. We, we still want to get your bat in the lineup. So we're going to put you at uh, maybe third base or first base or DH. And then, you know, three years go by and <laughs> you haven't gotten a whole lot of time to develop your defensive skills as a catcher. And you've missed a pretty big and important window for development where if, okay, now it's my draft year. Uh, I've been playing mostly first base and, you know, catching a little bit on the side or I caught a little bit in summer ball, but your defensive progress has lagged what it would have been had you been in pro ball right away. So um, not saying pro ball is the answer for everybody, but just in terms of development, I think professional baseball uh, would offer the most advantages. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree with pretty much everything you said, Ben. Uh, we got one final question here from Bryson Chapman on Instagram who asked, who is the best high school third baseman going into the 2024 draft? Uh, this is kind of a fun question, too, because I think there are a number of players who are currently playing shortstop who might move to third, and that, that could maybe complicate the question. So if it's like, who is the top-ranked prospect who is a likely third baseman or like actually right now playing third base? Um in terms of the latter players that we have listed as third baseman right now uh, and have played a lot of third base already, I, I think Aiden Harris is probably the answer. We have him ranked number 66 on our 2024 list at this point. Um, he is a big physical powerhouse of a player. The, the raw power is pretty massive. It's a pull-heavy approach. Um, it's long levers. There are the kind of swing and miss in the game of players that that fit that profile that we've talked about at the pro level on this podcast today um i do think he's a solid athlete he's got good arm strength so maybe he can stick at third base um but i think that if you wanted to expand this question to players who could play third at the next level someone even as high as caleb bonimer um who's our top ranked shortstop number 13 overall on the board he looks like the type of player who could either handle shortstop or third base. He did play a lot of third base uh, on the showcase circuit, just depending on the team he was on, and he looked good at, at both positions. Um, so you could say it's him. Uh, I think another shortstop who also is a risk to move to third base is Brendan Lawson, who's the top-ranked Canadian prospect in the class. We have him 44 overall. 
he maybe has the best infield actions of this group, um, but he also has a pretty physical lower half already. And maybe down the line, he'll add more weight and mass and, and slow down a little bit. And so maybe you'd prefer him on a corner and at third base where his hands and arm strength should probably work fine. Those three, I think, are probably the top names for this category. All the other guys are either like definite shortstops or not third basemen. Um, and, and the only like true third baseman I, I think I would have behind Aiden Harris, who we currently have it as a third baseman. Um, but Ben, do you have any other players who, who I didn't mention or do you disagree with my takes there? Yeah, I think Bonhamer probably profiles best at third base, so I would have him there. Mm-hmm. Um, Kale Fountain, who is a, a mountain of a human being, uh, probably like 6'5", 6'6", uh, ton of bat speed huge huge raw power from the right side certainly question of at, at that size does he end up outgrowing the position does he end up going to first base uh, i think there's a pretty good chance that ends up happening um, at times performs really well uh, at times it, it's you know hasn't been quite as hot and then you, you know you're gonna have like he's just a, he's so big it's gonna be power over hit there's some um you know, some swing and miss that comes with it, but uh, a ton of bat speed, a ton of strength, leverage, power. Uh, the ball really flies off his bat. Um, Andre Madugno, um, also at IMG Academy. He's from New Jersey. He's like kind of third base. You could put him in center field. Uh, super tooled up, super athletic, another really big guy, but uh, he can – he can run. He has a. He's at least in the mix for best raw arm strength in the class for a position player, uh, whatever position you want to put him at. Uh, I think he's up to like 98, 99 on the mound, uh, too. And just like a, uh, he doesn't really pitch a whole lot. Uh, it's pretty raw there. It's really more of a backup option. Um, so he's he's super tooled up. Uh, a lot of a lot of hit risk with him. I think some things he's going to have to just with his swing to really tap into that power. Um, very curious to see what ends up happening with him uh, in the draft. If a team just loves his tools and athleticism and upside mm-hmm. and wants to make, you know, what I assume would have to be a pretty big bet to sign him away from Duke. Uh, but I think yeah. there's a good chance he ends up getting to, campus too and kind of see how he, he could be a, a george he could be a george wolkow or brandon winnaker type who gets a mm. really hefty over slot bonus for a team that really buys into the tool set and is going to be patient with the hit tool yeah yeah that's a thing like you're not going to expect him to go out and hit right away it's it's going to be a um you know take some time with the development with the bat mm. and a lot of tools and then the you know on the opposite end of that scale is uh, ethan puig in uh, Miami and a Miami commit who nothing that will jump out at you in terms of the, you know, explosive athleticism or, or any major tools that he has, except for the hitting ability. I think it's just one of the most accurate barrels in the class, really good plate coverage, a lot of balls in play. It's hard to strike him out. Uh, He did hit that home run at PG national but he's not a a huge huge power guy so um if if there's a very bat driven team i could see them uh taking 
him in the draft and, and trying to sign him. But uh, I also think it's, uh, you know, I could see him going to Miami and being a contributor uh, in their lineup pretty quickly because I think he is a pretty advanced hitter. Yeah, I agree with, with all that. Um, okay, that's all the questions we had for today, and we are right around the two-hour mark, Ben. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or mention before we get out of here and get back into the prospect handbook grind and your, your international work? No, we got, uh, we'll probably record one more next week and then take the week off after that for uh, Christmas and, and New Year's. Yeah. Sounds good. So thank you guys for hanging out with us. Listen to us talk baseball. Uh, let us know if there's anything you guys want us to address on a future podcast. If you've got any questions, comments, uh, you can email us at futureprojection at baseballamerica.com. You can find Ben on Twitter at Ben Badler. That's also his Instagram handle. You can find me on Twitter at Carlos A. Colazzo. If you like the show and you want to leave us a review, you can wherever you get your podcast. We really appreciate that as well as We appreciate your support if you are just supporting Baseball America in general. So thank you guys. Uh, For Ben, I'm Carlos. We'll see you next time.